I'm Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. Here we are on Death by Design podcast, and I'm fortunate enough to know this cutie pie called Red Hoffman. She's a physician right now in North Carolina, my home state, but who never, you never know where she'll end up. But I love you, Red, because you come with the hands of a surgeon, the heart of a palliative care physician, and the mind of just creative aspects as well. And when you combine them in this little body with this red hair, you become very impactful in the world. That's so sweet, Kim. I love you too. (laughs) I do. So first of all, you know, you're so creative. Um, When people see a short sleeve shirt on you, they can see how creative you are with your tattoos. But you're my kind of physician. But it makes me wonder, like, what in the world how did you desire to become a physician? Well, I'll tell you, I never thought I would be a physician. Um, I had no interest in science or math, and I always thought I would be a writer. And so I think you sensed that in me. Mm, um, totally. And probably when I was in my late teens, several things happened that kind of changed the course of my life. And I mean, certainly the most important thing that happened at that time was when I was 19 years old. Um, my father was actually killed by, it's a crazy story, he was killed by a terrorist in Cairo, Egypt. He was on a business trip. He was 47 years old at the time. And obviously it was very sudden. It was um And crazy. It was in 1993. No one knew what terrorism was. You know, it wasn't something we talked about at the time. And actually, I think it was the second attack on an American citizen in Cairo that had happened since like the 70s. So it wasn't even really happening over there at the time. But um, through my dad's death, all of these very interesting things happened to me. Um, One of them was about Two weeks after my dad died, I actually got a postcard from him in the mail. What? Yeah, it was incredible. And in my typical dad fashion, the postcard just said, he called me Mel. That's my given name. Uh, And he said, you know, dear Mel, just thinking about you and hope you're well. I love you, dad. And that was so him, you know, and he sent Mm. that, he sent that the morning he died. Um, And so that was just like kind of a reminder that there are things on the other side. And I also found out later on because he was, um, when he was killed, a coworker of his was also murdered, but um, another gentleman actually lived. So I got to hear, you know, kind of the whole story of what happened. And um, one of the things I heard very shortly after my dad was killed was that the last thing he was talking about was me. (laughs) So I was kind of left with this legacy of someone just really loving me and believing in me, which is, I mean, just truly awesome. But wow. yeah, it's pretty. That's a powerful story. Such for a sure. Good, such a good dad. I always tell what, my, what's his name? His name was Kobe. C-O-B-Y. Kobe. Yeah. Um, what a great name. 
I know, Kobe Marvin. And I always tell my patients now or my patients' families when they're um, losing a loved one, especially a parent, I always tell them, you know, a good parent stays with you forever. And it's certainly true because 25 years later, I still have this like man by my side kind of telling me, you know, it's going to be okay and you can do it. Um, But I think because even though all these good things happen, I think because I was 19 years old, I ended up with this really deep sense of like loneliness and isolation, um, you know, because I didn't have the words to kind of express my feelings. And also because it was such a weird story at the time, again, like no one really knew what to say. Oh, my dad was shot in the head by an Islamic fundamentalist screaming Allahu Akbar is like a mm. really weird way to start a conversation. (laughs) So um, I really was left with this sense of real deep loneliness. And um, several other things happened over the years that kind of lent itself to that. Um, Like four years after my dad was killed, his murderer actually escaped from jail and, and killed nine more people. And so it was kind of dragged up in the New York Times again. So, you know, you open the paper and you see your dad's face again oh, and wow. kind of, you know, relive a lot of that. And um, a couple months after that, my mom and I turned on CNN and my dad's murder was like literally jumping around in a cage um, on the TV. So it was kind of like this, like layers of kind of grief and, and assault. And I think like many women my age at the time, you know, I was like uh, in my late teens, early twenties, I ended up just somaticizing all of that and got super sick. And because of being super sick, I ended up going to a lot of doctors and that's kind of how I got like really interested in medicine was kind of going through this grief process and, um, dealing with what it did to me. That's an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, they obviously helped you. Yeah, they did. And <laughs> and so, you know, you don't, when you think of the healthcare system that we live in right now, sometimes it's not all about helping a person. It's, you know, how do we re- regulations and productivity and documentation. And, and so it really is refreshing to hear that uh, physicians moved you and healed you in, in some sort of way that inspired you to become a physician. Yeah. I mean, I ended up becoming so interested in how the body worked and kind of seeing like interesting different results in me really led me to ch- change my mind about what I wanted to do with my life. So, you you know, you didn't start off wanting to be a medical direct, I mean, medical doctor. So tell me a little bit about where, what you were thinking and why did you end up in the medical field? Yeah. So I ended up, a lot of my care was actually from integrative practitioners at that time. So I did a lot of acupuncture and Chinese medicine. And then I ended up meeting this amazing woman who was a naturopathic physician. I was in South Florida at the time. And she really, she was an amazing woman and really helped me a lot and had a pretty profound influence on my life. And because of that, I decided I wanted to be a naturopath. And, you know, naturopaths are really, they're they're not licensed. I think they're probably licensed in almost 20 states now as primary care providers. And they really try to take a holistic view of um, the human body and really try to treat not just your um, physical body, but like your mental and spiritual and and emotional well-being as well. And so that was kind of the path that I initially started on. 
um, somewhere in that path, I kind of took a detour and I, I went to Thailand and I got dengue fever and I ended up having an existential crisis and ended up in India. Um, and then I ended up watching a, a, a surgery in the operating room for the first time in India, in a very hot room rather than a cold room like the ORs are in America, in flip-flops. And I was like, oh my God, I think I made a mistake. I want to be a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. That's, you know, I think you, I get, I get told a lot that, man, you've lived several lives. I, I think, I think that's where we connect too, because I think you've lived several lives right. as well. <laughs> I have taken, my dad gave me this book when I was like uh, in my teens, the road less traveled book. And I always think like, I have definitely taken the load, <laughs> that long, twisty, windy road. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, so you became interested in surgery. Yeah, I was very, I, I, you know, as a naturopath, I really fell in love, not so much with a particular modality. So a lot of my friends became really good at homeopathy or really good at botanical medicine. And I ended up falling in love with women's health and transgender health and medicine in general. And I was feeling like um, maybe I would have to practice with one hand tied behind my back. So I went more the allopathic route. And then when I was in that operating room, I thought this just fits my personality because surgeons, you know, surgeons are kind of, though it's very much a team sport. And I totally, I mean, believe that and practice like that in the end, like you're the captain of the ship when it's sinking and that just fed my being and probably my ego a little bit, but really just spoke to who I am, I think. But then you have to put the cherry on top with palliative care. I mean, <laughs> I, I think, I think you, it's like, uh, I, I, if I had to pick a doctor to serve me or, and, and, and do their thing, um, I, I think you would have the background that I would totally pick you <laughs> because <Kim>. you can, <laughs> you can do surgery, but you all can you always think, you know, in a sort of, nature, you know, mind, body, it all connects. But then you have the heart of a palliative care physician. Yeah. So you've got, you got a lot of love in there. I got very lucky. I mean, I ended up going to medical school in Portland, Oregon at OHSU. And first of all, it was right down, it was right, my naturopathic school is right down the hill from the medical school. So right away, I just had this great combination of the two. But also, Oregon is amazing. It's like the birthplace of the pulsed form was born like at OHSU. Um, and then it's the first state that licensed death with dignity. And so the palliative care department at my medical school with this award-winning team, and they I feel like my whole medical education, like palliative care was just integrated into my medical education. You know, it was very incredible to be talking about death with dignity in a state where it was actually an option for our patients. But I remember someone telling me on the palliative care team that I think they, the folks in Oregon became clear very early on that if they were going to offer something as quote unquote radical as death with dignity, that all their palliative services were going to have to be top notch. And so I think their palliative care is amazing. They have like a very mature hospice program and that just like lent itself to um, really a great medical education for all the medical students, I think. So what is it like to go from a state like Oregon <laughs> and now you're practicing in North Carolina where some of these are just now being talked about in the, you know, Con well, I guess the state 
legislation up in in Raleigh. You know, so they're talking about it, but that they're not doing it. So what is that like to straddle these two extremes? Yeah. So do you know, first of all, I didn't know this until I moved to North Carolina. North Carolina is only one of three states out of all the 50 states that requires that your advanced directives, like your li- your living will or your healthcare power of attorney form be notarized. So I think the others, I forget what the other two states, Virginia and someplace else in the Southeast. So right away, I feel like, I mean, that to me is pretty radical. And I've actually written my senators like that would be low hanging fruit, because to me that the fact that things need to be notarized puts this like inappropriate barrier for people, Mm. you know, like not every one of my patients in Western North Carolina it has access to a notary. So that like one thing is, is like quite frustrating to me. And then I totally agree with you. And then too, I think, you know, the, some of these things that we talk about, like, for example, when you talk about something like voluntary stopping and eating and eating and drinking, which certainly isn't illegal, but certainly in this state, I found sometimes when I talk about it, it makes people really uncomfortable. You know, I just think it's not as, I think the whole system just isn't as mature mm-hmm. yet. Yet, you know, yeah. there's there's definitely people working towards making changes. Yeah, and I I do I feel the same. Um, and sometimes it's it's not quick enough for me, and I have to kind of, you know, relax a little bit. But I do feel I've been asked, you know, what's your stance on this, and what's your stance on this, and it it tends to be, you know, like really people are interested on where I stand personally on some of these controversial subjects. And I say this, and I say it to everyone is like, the more choices we have in into life, the better that we can meet individuals where they're at. Um, and that's, that's bottom line, what I'm talking about, because what might be right um, for you might be wrong for someone else, but we have to consider both sides of the coin. You know, just having the option is not, I, I, I often think about this when I talk with people in general, if the fact that my just bringing something up, an idea or a thought is, is so irksome to you, like we need to like have a chat. You know what I mean? Right. Like if just my saying the words brings up so much, there's something underneath that that really needs to be explored. For You're right. Absolutely right. And you know, this is, this goes uh, to another kind of confusing subject is the word palliative care. Sure. You know, it's still, it's still a foreign word for people in the Southeast of, of the United States. And some, some people refer to palliative care as hospice. And, and so can you help us better understand what palliative care is and why is it different than hospice? Of course, of course. I mean, it, and, and words are so important, right? Um, so when I totally. think of palliative care, I just think of that whole patient care, you know, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, that can really be provided to anyone. But really, we focus on providing it to both the patient and the family of a patient who's been diagnosed with any life-changing or potentially life-shortening illness. So for me, that spans like from a new diagnosis of diabetes, which can be devastating for people, to like a diagnosis of, say, you've had chronic kidney disease, but now you need dialysis, to obviously something like more obvious, like you've just had a massive stroke or a massive traumatic brain injury or metastatic cancer. And it's also that that term palliative care really talks about that 
interdisciplinary team approach. So not multidisciplinary, but like interdisciplinary, which is really when it's not just the doctor leading the ship, it's everybody. It's the nurse, it's a licensed clinical social worker, it's the chaplain, it's when you're lucky, it's like the palliative care pharmacist, um, all coming together to provide really what amounts to just an extra layer of support for the family. I mean, that is it. It's just an extra layer of support, it, it's like another security blanket that you can get while you're getting your chemotherapy or while you're getting your dialysis or while you're considering not getting anything. Right. And and, and so this is what's that I need you to clarify is that all people who receive palliative care are not dying. I would say, well, you know, you can back up and say we're all dying, right? Well, all right, all right, <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> of I course. Say, the majority of people who receive palliative care, at least in our hospital, are not actively dying. They're actually like actively living, right? Um, they may have an illness that may at some point shorten the duration of their life. But for the most part, a lot of like the patients that I see, say when I was doing palliative care clinic, were actually just chugging along, getting their disease modifying treatment, and perhaps just looking for that extra layer of support, perhaps just looking for some greater symptom management than they were able to get from their oncologist, or perhaps just wanting to talk to someone about what their options were, but still getting their chemo still on dialysis. And so why do you, what's the difference with hospice then? It sounds like, you know, it's similar to hospice when you, when we explain it, but it, it is different. Right. And so hospice I think of is just like a little piece of palliative care. You know, it's like a little piece of that pie of palliative care. Those people might get hospice and hospice because of Medicare regulations is, is it's a pretty, it's for a pretty well-defined group. It's for people. And I think there's two things to remember about hospice. One is for people who have six months or less to live. And sometimes that's difficult, right? It's depending on what diagnosis you have, it might be hard to say if you truly have six months or less to live, but it's in the doctor's best estimation. And on top of that, it's not just six months or less to live. It's that the patient no longer wants to pursue disease-modifying treatment. And that's where the difference is, right? So you can have, say, pancre metastatic pancreatic cancer. Let's just say you fall into that six months or less based on prognostication. But if you still want to get chemo, then you're not appropriate for hospice. Mm because you still want to pursue disease-modifying treatment, which is completely appropriate if that fits into your goals of care. But if you have this diagnosis and you are no longer interested in disease-modifying treatment and want to focus purely on just quality of life rather than quantity, then I think of hospice. Right, right. And there's a real difference. Yeah. In in. You know, I, I struggle right now, and I'm sure everyone working in the hospice industry does, because the regulations are, like you said, it is a small group of people. It really is hard, um, in my opinion, to get someone admitted to hospice because it's so many checkboxes right now. It's being over-regulated by the Medicare benefit because of good reasons, but still, um, you know, you can't die of old age and under the hospice benefit, I feel. And so, you know, Right. What what's still appealing about hospice? Because why can't you have palliative care instead of hospice? And and, and what why would you choose one over the other? Or do or or do you have to? That is a great yeah no that I think that's a great question. 
I think that some of the patients I've taken care of have certainly died with the support of their palliative care team. The one thing I like about hospice, and I don't want to oversell hospice, and I think I learned a lot of that when I did my hospice and palliative medicine fellowship, is, I mean, it's dangerous to oversell it because while it's great, it's still one or two hours a week that someone's coming to your home. You have to fill all that other time with perhaps with caregivers and other sources of support. But what I love about hospice is there is always that there is a, I mean, a good hospice place will have a nurse on 24 hours a day that if you get into a crisis, if you get into a pain crisis or even like an existential spiritual crisis, there's somebody to call. And for people who really don't want to pursue disease modifying treatment anymore and who are getting closer to that end of life, one, it's really scary, you know, because the majority of people get hospice services in their home, not at a hospice house or in a facility. They're at their house. And um, if you haven't died before or been around people <laughs> who are dying, it could be really frightening. Which so is having, a large percentage of us. <laughs> right. So having that phone number, I think, adds like, I don't know. For me, I think it really adds a safety net. And then it is true at the very end, at least for the hospices that I've been involved with, like the care really can ramp up as appropriate. So I think it's, it's, I mean, I've certainly seen hospice nurses like at the house in the middle of the night for two to three hours treating a pain crisis. And so at the very end, you might really, it's nice to have that level of support so that you truly don't have to go back to the hospital. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and you know what? I find is I can tell that when a physician has been trained in palliative medicine versus just not have any palliative education. And so I really hope that I see this palliative care playing a role in all specialties. And I wanted to ask you is like, how do you see that playing out? Do you see palliative care as relevant in all different specialties? Well, I I certainly do. I think that you know, there's a difference. I think it's a good time to talk about the difference between primary palliative care and specialty palliative care. And so primary palliative care is really defined as those skills, like for instance, being able to appropriately discuss a code status with someone, being able to review someone's advanced directives and fill out a post form or a most form, depending on what state you're in, Um, being able to do some real basic symptom management, like basic pain management, basic management of nausea or constipation, um, those are, to me, primary palliative care skills that really any medical doctor in any specialty that sees, you know, that has one-on-one time with patients really should be able to deliver to their patients. And I think the difference is then there's that specialty level palliative care. And I think that's the palliative care that's provided by someone who's gone through a hospice and palliative medicine fellowship or has you know, years of experience like a lot of my surgical colleagues have just been grandfathered or grandmothered into the palliative care specialty because they were doing this work for 20 years. And so when the boards came around, they sat for those boards. And, you know, that specialty palliative care, I think, for me, is reserved for, you know, say, family members where there's a lot of strife or there's not a good agreement on what the goals of care are, or there's not clear advanced directives, or there's a lot of, um, say, spiritual angst where you really need the help of the licensed clinical social worker and the chaplain, where there's just symptoms that are just so poorly controlled that that basic pain management 
is just not cutting it. You really need someone to come in who understands, say, advanced use of methadone or something for pain control. And so for me and for what I hope for, you know, I, I work in a place where we have a surgical residency. Like, I hope that all the residents where I work will graduate with excellent primary palliative care skills because I think all surgeons should have that. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> palliative care, I, you know, we've known each other for a while now and we have these conversations and depth conversations and, you know, palliative care makes me feel like there's hope for this profession um, because, you know, you are a surgeon, you go in, you fix and you, you, you fix someone and you get them back out into the world. But when you talk about serving people as a palliative specialist, um, it's like you come alive. It's like the stories are rich. And so tell me, you know, what is, why do you love palliative care so much? Is it because it bridges the physician and the patient together in a, in a connected way? Well, one, I want to say that, you know, I think a lot of people who hear that I'm like a surgeon, especially a trauma surgeon, and I do palliative care and they're like, where's the connection? Like a lot of people don't know that actually the gentleman who coined the term palliative care was actually a surgeon, Dr. Balfourmont. And I think surgeons have a long history of palliation. In fact, like a lot of surgeries we do are, are really palliative procedures. We don't always operate for a cure. We oftentimes operate for people to feel better. And so for me, it like just sits as a really good mix. But what I love about being able to really integrate both into my life is that I love hearing people's stories. Like I feel like kind of getting back to my dad's story. Like I felt like I had such a weird story and I didn't know how to share it. So I really just let it stew inside of me. And now I feel like I want to just give space for everyone to share their story. And when I'm practicing in that, like when I have my palliative hat on, I'm just like sitting down and just listening. And that's like where the magic happens. I mean, to me, that's like my most favorite part of my day is, you know, hearing like, oh, talking to these older people, like, oh my God, where'd you, you know, where'd you meet? Tell me the story of falling in love. Tell me about this. Tell me about that. Like that's, I don't know. That's where the magic in medicine is, truly. Oh, I love that explanation. Yeah. And also when you start listening, that's how you get to people's goals of care. Because like once you start talking, you realize, oh, this is what's important to people. And then it really helps you guide that whole conversation. Well, and some people, you know, when they're entering this scary, you know, serious, almost end of life phase, they they don't know what they don't know. Yep. And and so, you know, these these med speak words that you know, you and I toss around because we've been in this field. They don't, a common person, an everyday person doesn't know what we're talking about. Um, so when you open the conversation and ask about someone else, I think you open the door to getting to know someone. And that's that's why I think uh, you're a unique surgeon. Not many surgeons are like that, um, you know, and uh uh, but I, I I think that might change, and I think you might be leading the way in that. But so, how has palliative care enhanced you as a surgeon and as you know a physician in general? How has that really changed how you practice? I mean, I learned so much in my palliative care fellowship last year or the year before. It was a very um you know, interesting and challenging year because I, I thought I was such a great communicator and a great listener. And then I had all these great teachers who sh like really gave me great feedback and 
showed me, oh, I have a lot to learn. So I do think it has made me a better listener just in general. Um, one thing I love about palliative care and that uh, interdisciplinary team is, you know, the team really supports one another. And I'll just like, as a person who spends a lot of time in the hospital with a lot of other medical providers, we're not always super nice to each other. There's a lot of snark. And a lot of that comes from just being overworked and tired. Like, think a lot of it's personal, but you often hear, you know, you'll hear specialties talking about one another, or you'll hear, um, you know, doctors talking about nurses or nurses talking about the respiratory therapist or whatever, you know, we're always like, no one's, no one's as good as we are. And, (laughs) (laughs) but I think that because the palliative care team, I think really works hard to like support each other, that I hope that it has made me like a better partner. Like I want all of my partners to be happy and feel supported. And I feel very supported by them as well. But that's like very, very important to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I think also I've learned like it's just being in palliative care has really forced me to look at a lot of my own biases Um, And so one of the biases I have to check a lot is because I'm in palliative care and because I'm very comfortable with death and I know that we all have an expiration date, I have to, like, I check myself a lot, like, because not everyone else feels like that. And, you know, I don't ever want to not operate on someone because I'm comfortable with death. You know, I want to always offer them all the options with not a lot of, um, judgment attached to that and like see by talking to them what works best for them. So it's really taught me about being very mindful about my own biases. I love that. And, you yeah. know, it's it's very human to want the best for another human being and project what we think is the best onto them. Right. Yes. You know? Yes. What what I think is the best is not always the right. best. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, so you know, you've had all this training and you can have these hard conversations. What are you seeing in the midst of an acute setting hospital? Um, are are other physicians really comfortable with some of these hard conversations or do they do they lean on palliative care or where do we go from here? How do we become better? So I think, you know, I work, I mean, I'll just say, I think my partner's because they're my partners are just, I, I actually am in, in a group of acute care surgeons and, and the majority of them are just uh, really all of them are pretty awesome at like having these discussions. But I think part of that is because I work at a hospital where the palliative care team is really strong and it's really well integrated into the hospital. And so we call palliative care a lot. So we work with those palliative care providers and by working with other providers, you learn some of that language and then you don't call them for everything. And so I think part of it is if you want to get better, you need to kind of consult the palliative care team and just hang out with them, right? So when the palliative care team is coming to see your patient and doing a family meeting, you should just sit in and see what they do. And so that's what I, you know, I always tell medical students and residents, just go and watch what they do. And you could, the stuff's not rocket science. I mean, you can pick up some great tips. Mm -mm. Um, one of the things I'll see with some providers is that they just don't feel like empowered. Like I'll tell them, you can send someone to hospice. You don't need a palliative care consult to send someone to hospice. If the person has six months or less to live by your physician estimation and it is appropriately aligned with their goals of care, you can start that process. And I think people just don't know that. 
And so kind of constantly like, hmm. you know, educating in you know, a loving way rather than like, oh God, I don't want to do this. You know, um, it's just, right. you know, I mean, it's helpful. Then like the next time people are like, oh, I know how to, I know how to do this. Right. Yeah. I mean, those are my, my biggest suggestion is if you have a, if you have a palliative care provider around, like just spend some time with them because you can pick up a lot of tips to do some great primary palliative care. And then I try to be like, when I see stuff where I'm like, oh, that could have been done better is, you know, um, a lot of my palliative care fellowship was like, I got a lot of feedback and then it's taught me how to give some good feedback again, in a very loving way that like, oh, you know, maybe try this next time, or this is what works for me, or did you consider this? Um, so being willing to, if you have some skills, being willing to educate the people around you so you don't feel like you have to do all the work. Yeah, exactly. And I know, you know, I know you're you're at the hospital now working and you stole away for, for this moment. And this is what I love about you is that you're just a, you can have so many balls in the air. But this is the thing. You're a writer. And I know this is not on the outline, but I feel there's a book coming from you. And I, I really do. And I think you have a message. Um, and I always, when I see you, I say that to you because you see the world so different and so simply um, that it has even helped me um, with my personal life, my professional life. And I just, I don't know, I just think that's going to happen. And um, I hope that one day uh, I can bring you back on as the author of your book and talk to you. Will you be the midwife for it? <laughs> I, you know what? <laughs> as much as you have done for me... Uh, will you be the death doula I will it? totally. I, whatever <laughs> I can do to support you, you know I'm I'm going to be there. And, and I have to give homage because, you know what, you and I would have never have met. But Shoshana and went to medical school, school with you. And I guess you saw us following each other and you were at UNC Chapel Hill and we met up and a couple of family members were there and, uh, <laughs> which were cray cray. That was fun. And why, and why was a lot of wine yeah. had. <laughs> yeah. And so the power of connection, um, is so relevant when it comes to whether, how you're living your life, whether you're practicing medicine or you're going through an acute setting, it's, it's just really the most important thing. And, and that's the thing is reach out and connect. And that's how we connected. And I tell you, I feel like we went to college together. You know, it's, it's one of those soul sisters that when you meet someone, you're, you're family. And um, I know I'm still so happy I called you. I know, right? But <laughs> I will say this, uh, you, the people that you serve are so lucky to have you. And I, I don't say that to blow up your ego. I know who you are. And I am so grateful that people like you are coming into this uh, really crazy, acute world of, of healthcare and still managing to, to bring the humanness back to it in that magic like you talk about. And that's what gives me hope um, one day when I face my own episode or end of life. So thank you for who you are. Oh, thank you, Kim. That was lovely. Oh, well, I love you. And I know you have to get back to work. Um, but I really appreciate you coming on this podcast and taking time out. And look, how can people follow you? So I'm on Twitter at red, like the color MDND. So medical doctor and naturopathic doctor. And that's where I do the majority of my posting life happiness. So that's the best place to well, find. Well, great. And and you just never know when when you'll pop up as as the new author and writer. 
um, with your your soon to be book out soon, in which you haven't <laughs> written one word. But I, I have hope. I have hope for you. Um, it's but germinating look, in my head right now. It is. It is. Um, and I'm not going to let it go. Hey, thank you. Go go serve your patients, and thank you for who you are. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Kim. I love you. I love you too. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.